your Bible and open it with me to Psalm 58. Psalm 58, as we are taking some time just to go through the Psalms, uh, we've been this summer through 56 and 57, Psalms where David is fleeing from Saul and from the Philistines, and he's besieged, he's in a cave, and he's praying for mercy. And, uh, and in that context, um, trusting in the Lord, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. I know that God is for me. There's great statements of, of faith here. Psalm 58 is going to sound different. And uh, so let's give our attention to Psalm 58. This is God's word uh, for our edification, our blessing this morning. Verse 1. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we believe this text was inspired by the Holy Spirit and through your servant David for our ears today. And so, Lord, we ask again that you would help us to hear it and receive it and Teach us, Lord, the things that you want us to know. Lead us in the paths of truth and righteousness today. May we see Christ Jesus, our mighty, victorious King. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you've not read Psalm 58 for a while, I uh, wouldn't be surprised if the language was a little startling. Um, maybe you were maybe somewhat even taken aback. This is this is a psalm that does not sound like Psalm 56 and 57. It's got a very different feel to it. Uh, in those psalms, David is in need and he's praying for mercy and he's professing his faith. Uh, but Psalm 58 doesn't begin with a prayer for mercy. Psalm 58 begins with a, a rebuke for the, uh, the rulers and leaders of Israel. And when David does get to praying, he prays for God to do strong and even violent things uh, against these men. He, he prays that, um, that God would break their teeth and tear out their fangs. Uh, he wants God to destroy them so that they vanish like water that runs away and, and like the snail that dissolves into slime. Uh, boys and girls, I wonder if your, if your mom and dad ever uh, taught you to pray like that. Uh, most likely not, right? We're, we're not generally taught to pray imprecatory psalms, psalms that wish curses on the enemies of God. And yet, Psalm 58, David does that. Well, how, uh, how do we make sense of that as Christians? And whom does David wish these harsh realities upon? Uh, well, what's this all about? How do we make sense of it? Well, it might help if I tell you that uh, David is wishing these things upon politicians. Does that help? <clears throat> You're going, 
Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's rebuking uh, the leaders of Israel. This is written out of David's righteous anger and utter disgust with the ruling class of Israel, the judges and the governors and the priests. And so in Psalm 58, David is not focused on his personal need and personal pain, but he looks out on this wicked world and he grieves the injustice and the oppression, particularly as as it is practiced by the ruling class. So in the previous two Psalms, David is asking God to do a work in his heart. Here, Psalm 58, he's asking God to do a work in the world. We're not told when the psalm was written. Uh, It's most likely written around the same time that Psalm 56 and 57 are written, which which would tell us then that uh, David is writing this psalm as he is himself experiencing for the first time in his life serious oppression and gross injustice. Remember, David's been a success story. David's been a golden boy. Everything he touches is blessed by God. And now for the first time, uh, the reality of injustice and, and the power of wicked men, David feels keenly. He's experiencing uh, what they can do. And that experience has made David sensitive in a new way to um, the injustice that's in Israel and in the world and the, and the experience of those who suffer under that oppression. Isn't it true that when you are brought into some trial, some new painful experience, something you've, you've never really experienced before, but you suddenly also find a new awareness of and compassion for those who are dealing with the same thing. So if, if you've been through the ordeal of cancer, you have a newfound awareness of and fellowship with others who have experienced the same ordeal. Find, suddenly you find people that you've known all your life but you've never known this part of their story and they're coming to you and they're sharing, yes, I went through that same experience. If you've had a miscarriage, if you've lost a loved one in a, in a tragic way, if, you've, uh, if you have a wandering child, if you have a difficult marriage and it's, and it's uh, right, whatever the heartache might be in your life, isn't it true that that experience brings you into a fellowship of suffering and you have a new awareness of and appreciation for those who are around you who suffer the same or similar things. See, when life is going well, we tend to overlook the trials of others. We know they're there in a general way, but, but one of God's purposes in suffering is to make us keenly awake to and aware of what other people experience. It brings us out of sort of our self-referential life and opens, uh, widens our vision to see to look around us, to notice the world that we live in. And so Psalm 58 is an, an important psalm because it reminds us that while our personal trials do matter, they're not the only thing that matters. And, and there's a whole world out there, a whole world in which millions are groaning under oppression and corruption. Uh, and, and, and suffering under those who've been placed over them. So this is a psalm then that invites us to step out of our own personal crisis for a moment and to notice the crisis of the world. That something is fundamentally wrong with the world at large. The psalm begins with a question intended to reveal the wrong, and so it begins with a rebuke. 
do you indeed in, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? The use of the word gods here is small g, if you notice in your Bible. could also be translated, you mighty lords. Uh, David is just referencing the rulers, the leaders, the governing class of Israel, those who have been given positions of authority and honor. Uh, David acknowledges that, that the structure of authority is a God-given reality, that God places kings and rulers over people. David respects that deeply, even to the point where when he has the opportunity to kill King Saul, he doesn't do it because that's God's king, God's anointed king, and it's not David's place to remove him. Um, so David deeply respects governing authority as an institution created by God, and it's precisely because David has such a deep respect for what God has instituted as good in the world that he's incensed when people take that and pervert it to their own wicked ends. And he feels perfectly free as God's child to call those who are over him to obey God who's over them. And that's what he does in Psalm 58. This is a straight-up rebuke of Israel's leaders and rulers. He's not talking to the pagan, uh, the Philistine kings and princes and governors, but to those who've been uniquely called by God to rule over and govern God's people. You see, the fact that Israel is God's own possession, the fact that Israel is unique of all the nations in the world as a, as a, as a nation whose king is God himself, you see, that... The, the identity of, of Israel, what Israel is to God, makes the sin of its leaders all the more perverse. It's one thing for a pagan Philistine ruler, right, to oppress his people. It is another thing entirely for Israel's leaders to oppress God's people. And so you can see the righteous indignation that David experiences. And in verse 1 then has this note of incredulity. Do you indeed? Seriously? You guys are going to try to tell me with a straight face that you, you decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? It's a question that exposes the crime. And David immediately responds, no, you do not do this. In your heart you devise wrongs, and your hands deal out violence on the earth. Which, uh, notice, is exactly how sin works, isn't it? It begins in the heart with our desires, our idols, and then it moves to the hands. And, and, uh, and so David talks, it, it begins in your heart, you devise wrong, and then with your hands you do violence. Sin is always violence. When you lie, when you steal, when you cheat, when you covet sexual immorality drunkenness. It's, it's always violence. You see, it's always violence against those we live with as we wound their hearts and sin against their person. It's always violence against God's holy law, His good, perfect law, how He's ordered the world. It's violence against the nature of reality, and it's violence against God Himself. Sin is always violence. And Israel is suffering then under the, the reckless violence of its wicked leaders. Judges are accepting bribes. Governors are doing favors for wealthy friends at the expense of the poor and the weak. Prophets are lying, telling uh, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Priests are um, 
immoral, sexually immoral and, 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 uh, and stealing from the sacrifices. And this is normal life in Israel. People sort of just, right, that's business as usual. Just, it's just the way things work. It's the way it is. But it's, it's not the way it's supposed to work. Not anywhere, particularly not in Israel. Uh, Cornelius uh, Plantinga wrote a book, oh, maybe 15, 20, 15 years probably now, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin. Not the way it's supposed to be. We get used to sin. Sin feels natural and normal to us. It is not natural. It is not normal. It's not supposed to be this way. Children should not be rebelling against parents. Spouses should not be yelling at each other. Politicians should not be lying. Wealthy business owners should not be taking advantage of their power to abuse and hurt and wound others. Right? The, the world should not be like this. It's an offense. Derek Kidner writes, With its passion for justice, the Psalter does not allow us to get used to the scandal of evil in high places. We do get used to it. We get jaded. Right? Uh, when we hear the, the next crime or the next corruption, uh, some politician caught taking bribes, some Hollywood star caught cheating the system, uh, some judge making an awful, uh, awful ruling, uh, we can just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, it's just the way it is. But, but Psalm 58 calls us to a certain indignation. It shouldn't be this way. But it is this way. And that raises the question, Why? Why is it this way? Why does power corrupt so easily? Why does absolute power corrupt absolutely? Why is the world the way that it is? And the answer David gives in verse 3. The reason is that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. We call this the doctrine of original sin. It just means that uh, because of Adam's sin, Adam acting as the head of the human race, that every child born into the world is born in Adam's sin, born in the status of fallenness, the status of sinfulness. And out of that status, we're born with twisted hearts. So we love the wrong things. And so even children, right, from birth go astray speaking lies. Isn't it amazing how easily children lie and how Quickly, they learn to lie, and you don't have to teach them to lie. Did you do that, honey? Nope. Didn't do it. And you know they're lying. Where do they get? Where do they learn that? Well, they didn't have to learn it. It's native and inherent. Original sin he just tells us that the problem with the world is that is that people are in bondage. Humanity is in bondage to the power of sin. And the, and the reason you have wicked rulers is because wicked infants grow up. And they act out of the same fallen, wicked, twisted heart. That's the problem with humanity. We are all born with a desire for sin and a willingness to sin, a love for sin. Something is profoundly warped within us. This is a doctrine that we need to just remember and hold to because we live in a world that denies it even though it is universally proven. 
This doctrine means that every single man-made design to fix the world is destined for failure. What you have happening in America right now is this great um, just yelling match about how to fix things. And some people are convinced that the only way to fix America is tear it down to its roots, break down the laws, destroy the institutions, throw out the Constitution, uh, so that we can make America truly a place of equity and justice. And those people are usually speaking along Marxist lines. Other people are saying we just need to get the right person in the, in the office. We just need to get the right, uh, the right political party in power. We need to get the right judges on the, on the, on the seats. None of it's going to work. If, if, if what you're after is the world as it ought to be, it's not going to work. It can't work. Because the wicked are estranged from the womb and go astray from birth speaking lies. And there's no human fix for it. The best you can do is design original sin into the system of how you intend to govern a nation. And our founding fathers uh, showed quite a bit of wisdom in doing that. But you see, it can't fix it. Only Christ is sufficient for the depth of the human crisis. Now notice how David describes the sin. They have venom like the venom of serpents, like a deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of its charmers or of the cunning enchanter. In those days, it was believed that certain snakes were deaf. Enchanters, you know, uh, would, would, uh, would make money, actually, by showing their ability to enchant a snake, usually cobras. Uh, adders were, um, were not very um, trainable, I suppose, in that sense, and so people thought they were deaf, and so the, the enchanter could play his little flute, uh, but, but to no avail. Now we know that... Um, well, I think we know all snakes are deaf, I think is, is, is true. Uh, what the charmer was doing was enchanting him with the movement um, of the flute. But, the, um, but in that day, so it just, just understood that there's, there are certain snakes that don't hear. And, and David is saying, well, that's exactly like the wicked. They, they have venom in their mouth, so when they speak, they cause harm. There's poison in their mouth. And they destroy things, and they bring death and destruction from, through their mouth. And they're deaf. They don't hear reproof. You can talk to them. Israel's leaders, you can talk to them about what God says, about what the Word says, and they just they don't hear it. Jesus had identically the same issue with the, the leaders of His day. They don't hear. They've stopped up their ears. Oh, Jesus says that. I, that I, you know, I, I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And so refusing to hear, God gave them a spirit of stupor so they could not hear. The judgment that God brings to, intent, to purposeful dead deafness, the judgment is deafness, right? If you want to be deaf, if you refuse to hear God, at some point God will say, okay, then you will not hear. You will not hear. What a scary, scary place to be. And yet David says that's exactly what's happened to Israel's leaders. They refuse to hear. They cannot hear. So what is to be done with wicked rulers such as this? Well, thirdly, the request. David's request is just that God would render them powerless. Uh, that's what it means by break 
the teeth in their mouth. It doesn't mean punch them in the mouth. It means uh, take away the fangs, right? The venom is in the fangs. Uh, the, the young lion has fangs, and that's how he destroys things. And he's just saying, make that young lion toothless and render that snake harmless. And secondly, make them disappear. Let them disappear like water that just disappears into dry ground. Uh, let, let them disappear like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Let them disappear like, uh, and do it quickly. That's verse 9. Uh, it, it's talking about burning, uh, uh, heating something up with thorns. Thorns have um, very much like an evergreen tree. If you light an evergreen tree, boys and girls, if you've ever burned a Christmas tree, um, it really flames really hot and really fast, and then it's done. It's quick. And David says, let it be like that. Just remove them from the scene. You see, this prayer is, Lord, act. Your world is broken. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Those who are made in your image are shot through with sin. The rulers are oppressing those they're supposed to bless. Creation is groaning under the wickedness of men. Act, Lord. Act. Engage. That's the prayer. And what would the result of that be? Verse 10 to 11. The result will be the righteous will, see, will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now again, we just kind of... Sh shouldn't that be in the Quran? That doesn't sound like Christian text. Well, remember, David's a warrior uh, engaged in God's warfare against evil. Uh, and this is an essential biblical theme. The, the idea simply is that um, David understands the actual nature of things. That there is a cosmic conflict taking place between the living God and the devil. Between uh, God and the hosts of evil. A contest between wickedness and righteousness. And so you see, David isn't complaining about these, personal, about these men because they're a personal inconvenience. He is raising the issue of these wicked men before all the way up to God and asks God to judge them because they're enemies of God and they're enemies of God's people, enemies to God's cause. They belong to the evil one and David wants evil to be destroyed. Don't you? Don't you want evil to be destroyed? Beginning in your own heart? Don't you want, don't you want to be done with children who are abused? Don't you want to be done with, with, with young girls sold into slavery? Don't you want to be done with injustice and racism and perversion? Don't you want this world to be cleansed of all the things that mar God's good creation and blaspheme God's good name? I hope you want to be done with it. I hope there's, a, there's within you this deep longing that, that God would act. You see, that, friends, the Bible invites us to long for big things. We tend to long for little things. We long for a good marriage, and we long for nice vacations and a good job. And all those things are blessings that God gives, but, 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 but the Bible invites us to, to, to yearn for something vastly, vastly more, to yearn for glorious things. A day when evil will be completely destroyed. A world where there's no more death and no more crying and no more corruption, no more sin and no more pain. Something 
just magnificent and beautiful and glorious and good all the way through. That's what God wants us to yearn for. And so David makes two points as he concludes the psalm. First, that victory is coming. And the righteous will be rewarded, won't they? That's what he says. The righteous will be rewarded. God will repay evil with judgment. And he will reward the righteous. So victory is coming, and God will be vindicated. I love what he says. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. You see, the world does not believe that's true. The wicked rulers of the earth today do not believe that is true. The wicked rulers of this earth believe that might make right and that it is perfectly fine for them to do whatever their wicked heart desires as long as they can get away with it. They do not believe there is a judgment day. And it is necessary in God's world, it is necessary for it to be known that there is a God in heaven who sees and that there is a heavenly judge who will repay and that the scoffers in a moment will be put to shame and will realize they were devastatingly wrong. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. David looks forward, you see, with prophetic eyes to the day when God will intervene in a cataclysmic way and judge all wickedness. Isaiah speaks of it, Isaiah 24. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. Every power that resists God is, will in a moment be judged. We read about it in the book of Revelation. So this psalm, friends, calls you and I to live with an eschatological hope. I know it's a big word, but it's a good word. It just means that, you, that we live with our eyes set on what is yet to come. That we live in this world, but as citizens of the world to come. That we live in this city of man, but we are yearning for the city of God. That, that we live our life now with a conviction that the world will not always be this way. God will make it right. King Jesus will make it new. And we will not be satisfied fundamentally until it happens. And so we live now then with, with yearning and longing and patience. We hope for what is unseen. But we are convinced that it's all true. Now, if you are unconverted this morning, and I don't, you maybe have been in the church all your life, but if you're unconverted this morning, this, this psalm is a great threat to you because the truth that it, is, it contains is a great danger to you. God will surely judge the earth. And that means he'll judge people, individual people. And if you are unconverted, if you're outside of Christ, that just means that the day of judgment is fast approaching and you are in grave danger because God will judge and you will not escape him. I had that conversation with someone just recently. You can rebel, you can kick, you can scream, you can complain, you can do all of it. But when you stand in front of God in the presence of Jesus Christ, you will give an account for your life. And you will not escape it. What will you say to Jesus on that day? The question is, have you lived uprightly? And the answer is, no, you have not. 
You have not, and I have not. And no amount of self-reformation will rescue you. You can clean up your act until the cows come home. It will not save your soul. You can't save yourself. You can't rid yourself of your original and actual sin. Only Jesus can. And that's why he came. That's the gospel. On the great and final day, the righteous will be rewarded. Who are the righteous? Well, that's the wonderful story of the gospel. The righteous are the righteous who are made that way by the gift of God's grace. You see, the wicked rulers of Israel are wicked from birth, and so are you. And so am I. David realizes this in Psalm 51, right? Surely I was evil from conception, from the time my mother conceived me. As he reflects on this awful sin he's committed with Bathsheba and her husband. You see, the, the crisis of the world is the crisis of every one of us. It's the crisis of every individual. We're all born in sin. What makes men differ is grace and grace alone. God has intervened in this world, in his son, in order to rescue us from our hopeless bondage to sin. The marvelous good news of the gospel is that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the wonderful promise of the gospel. So the invitation is for every sinner to call on the name of the Lord and the promise is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the church because that's the message of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. That God has intervened in this corrupt and wicked and fallen world with his own son in order that sinners might be made righteous and everything might be made new. And friend, if you've already come, keep coming. Right? This is, the, this is the, the life we walk. We go to Jesus day after day after day in the midst of the brokenness. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray that God would fix our eyes on what is yet to come. To wait for what he has promised. To wait in faith, to wait in obedience, to wait in hope. As I read to Elena this morning, it's a wonderful verse. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying to the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I'd like you to take that thought, take this, this psalm, which recognizes the, the corruption and the brokenness and the fallenness and yet has this deep confidence that there is a God who will reward the righteous and a God who is able to make sinners righteous through Jesus Christ. Take those truths into the reality of your life, into the reality of your, of your relationships, the reality of your sicknesses, the reality of all the things that, that hurt and things that you don't have and, and things that are wrong in your life. Take that reality, and in faith then, you see, trust this God who will judge. Trust this God who gave his son to you. Trust that, that because he reigns today, you're going to be okay. And not, even, not just okay, you are going to be so unbelievably, splendidly, and eternally blessed, you can't imagine it. And so let, let this truth bring you hope and peace and, and even joy in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the brokenness. Let's be people who are vibrating with the tune of what is yet to come. That it, that it, that it shapes the way we think and what we pray for and hope for and what we cry for. 
May God receive the glory. Amen. Oh, Father, I thank you for this psalm that lifts us up from our own personal pain and it makes us cry and for the, the, the pain of the world, this broken world. Lord, I pray for your church today in every part of the globe where we have brothers and sisters who are walking this road with us and, and facing the, the, the heartaches of this life in Iran, in Iraq, and Indonesia, where persecution is so severe, in China, where the, the government is increasingly oppressing, in Australia, which is just becoming so pagan. Pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Africa and all the ravages of sin and disease that, that, that we find there, all the corruption that's, that's so prevalent, all the, the false teaching so deadly. Pray for our brothers and sisters in South America, Brazil, and, and Chile, and Peru. Pray, Lord, for uh, just the, the gospel to be pure and, and, and clean and for the church to be built up in strength. We pray for Central America, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Mexico, and for our own country. Lord, I pray for um, the Middle East and the particular trials of being a Christian in uh, an Islamic world. Father, we thank you that you know your children by name and you know us by name and that you are at work in all of our lives with infinite wisdom and skill. So Lord, give us a big vision for what you're doing in the world and what you promise and the, the, the glory that will be revealed to us that makes this suffering not worth comparing. And the Lord, in that, give us peace as we keep ourselves in the love of God and we wait for the coming of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.